Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Glenn Stahlsmith. Glenn is a pastor who serves two United Methodist churches in rural North Carolina. He's also a Ph.D. student at Duke Divinity School. For 12 years, he lived in the Philippines, working as an ethnomusicologist with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He's also the reviews editor of Global Forum on Arts and Christian Faith. I give you Glenn Stalsman. Glenn, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. Interesting texts this week, uh, chopped up a little bit, like a sort of, it's it's a very interesting sort of gourmet lectionary chop up in, in, <laughs> in, in, in both our first and second readings. This kind of, the texts jump into the first and second chapter. First, we've got Job. We have 1-1 one, one, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And yeah, it's funny, there's only four, Job only appears in the lectionary four times. Yeah, and it's these next four weeks, I think, a series of four. Yeah, so it it's, you know, it's this is one of those times where like, it probably profits someone to just sit and read through the book of Job. Like, you know, if you're going to preach through it, it's a good time to sort of... This is the week to do it. Yeah, read through the whole book, find your favorite commentator or something and spend, you know, an afternoon or, or, or two with it and get this sort of overview before you try to, if you're going to preach on this text or the, and you know, especially on subsequent Sundays, because you got to do a lot of filling in the gaps because <laughs> yes. it's not a short book. And you also want to make sure you don't preach four identical sermons. So you need to have the, the whole scope. Read, yeah, good good advice. Read the whole thing before you, if you're going to do Job for four weeks, read the whole book this week. Reinhold Niebuhr in Leaves from the Notebook of a Tamed Cynic said it took him about six months in the pastor to realize he was preaching the same sermon every week just from different texts. Yeah. <laughs> so if Niebuhr feeling. was doing that all over the place, the temptation to do it from Job will definitely be rampant for many people. So here we have Job. We get the intro, right? We yep. get him. We get there's man. Once was a man named Job in the land of Uz, <laughs> yeah. blameless and upright. And so it, it's interesting to note he's not an Israelite, right? Right. He he is as in the godly pagan. He may pre predate that. This is one of the right. earlier books, earlier traditions. So it's very likely he he was before Jacob in Israel. Godly pagan, just like Jeffers and the likes. Tell us Donald Trump is. There you go. <laughs> he was the oldest man, a wonderful man, very powerful, very he was the most blameless. He was probably the least sinless, sinful least sinful person you'll ever interview. <laughs> I'm always skeptical of someone that says I'm the least racist person, right? <laughs> you gotta say that. <laughs> There's probably something weird when you're saying that. But so then we ch- we hear this brief intro and then we jump into the heavenly beings, the heavenly court here. This is sort of after the maybe ancient Near Eastern royal court, right? Everybody around the sovereign. It's like we part have, two. So they 
that's I think why the lectionary chops it up. There's no reason to read read both chapters one and two because you really get a you, you get an escalation, um, but a lot of repetition. So chapter two kind of gets right to it. If, if you only got a few minutes for reading on Sunday morning, jump right to chapter two, verse one. And the Satan, the accuser, says, "Where have you come from?" Which is interesting. That I know, I take it that's not like stage left or stage right, but he's asking, you know, where, <laughs> like, where, where have you been? And he's been going, which is to and fro, which is how everyone and, greets you in the Philippines. That's the standard greeting. Where, where have you? Where, where have you, you been? coming from? Yep. Where yep. you come from? And I, and actually, it's the Lord who sounds like Donald Trump here. Have you considered Job? There's no one like him. He's the most blameless. He's the most upright. You're never sure. going to find anyone more likely to turn away from evil. So this is a reality just... show. He was the first apprentice. <laughs> exactly. It is. It's the first. Yeah. It's the first apprentice. Okay. Right. You know, along then comes. You can preach that. Then, then exactly. Exactly. So he, you know, so there's no one like him. He still persists in his integrity. Um, and Satan says, skin for skin, all the people have, skin for skin, all the people have, they would give to save their lives. Stretch out your hand, now touch his bone and flesh. He will curse you. He will curse you to your face. Very well. He's in your power. Only spare his life. So he gets this boundary here. You can't, you can't kill him, but you can do anything else you want to do. And thank goodness for Job at this time, there's no IRS. Right. So, uh, yeah, but any, all of the satan, and we should say that it's probably not helpful to do too much biblical theology here. Right. You know, the, the accuser here is one of the, or maybe it'd be interesting to do that. I, mean, I don't know, depending on homiletically what you it, want to do. But. This, yeah, the, the lectionary makes it a little tough because if you really read the whole scope of the book, it's really not a book about Satan versus God. No, not at all. But that's not what you all. get this week. <laughs> so. Yeah, and, it, and, and it's not a book that I think deals with the problem of evil, right. or, or at least at the heart of it. I mean, the, the, there are lots of... Or Job's patience, right? Mm -hmm. The patience of Job. We always say, like, I think there are many ways to to misread this, to get the message of the book wrong, and and I don't think that's you know, if anything, this is 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 Israel's question, like, why why are we faithful? You know, what I mean, like, what what is right. you know, because Israel, uh, you know, there's a story of the Old Testament is a story of ups and downs, right? Mm -hmm. And yet Israel's called to find God in all of it. And so, you know, you could look at Job as sort of, you know, this is the ideal Israelite in the wilderness, yeah, I, right? I was taught at one point, and I don't remember anymore who to attribute this to. I've been around for a while. Um, that I was, I was taught that this was uh, another lens to bring, that the wisdom literature brings to the scripture, because um, you get a lot of wisdom literature that's like Proverbs, right? Where it's very if-then. If you do this well, then you will reap rewards, which is like like 90% true in life, isn't it? Like if you, you know, sober up and you work hard and you, you find the right partner and this and that, like things generally work out. Like that's true. But what Joe brings in is, you know, for those other times where you might do all that, but that's not a guarantee that everything's going to be fine. And and it doesn't answer. You don't get to the end of Job with a nice answer about um, theodicy. Why? Be <laughs> no, not a, not at all. Not I, I think at all. God's answer is like is, it's it's like um, Jack Nicholson from The Stand. Um, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> I think is God's answer to Job at the end. Like if you really want a universe 
that bends around um, what you do and what you perform, um, you couldn't handle that. You don't want that. Um, you don't know enough about what I have to do to keep this thing running. <laughs> it's kind of how I read some of God's responses later on. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know, Walter Brueggemann's book uh, is on the on the theology of the Psalms is fantastic. It's one of my favorite books on the Psalms, and he says, you know, there are Psalms of orientation, Psalms which are Psalm one. Hey, God is, you know. Uh, the law is great if you're if you're near it you're like a, you know a tree planted by you know by the river you're gonna do great everything's hunky-dory there's the disorientation right that god I'll take you know i want to bash my baby's enemy my enemy's babies against a rock and you know worse god and all this and then there's the reorientation psalms where you've gone through the valley of the mm-hmm. shadow right and that's like you know psalm 40 you know i waited patiently for the lord he he inclined and heard my cry and out of the pot, mire mire in the pit like there's things have been upset the apple cart's been upset right and then now things have the storm has been weathered and your faith is forever different but really, that that's it's almost like I, the 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 orientation psalms are almost ideal, mm-hmm. right? Because who lives it? Who for us lives in the ideal? It's it's a, it's a prescript or a precept precept. And then you know, it, a lot of life is lived between disorientation and reorientation. Yeah. And, and I think that 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 here you have the story of of, of the of that journey here in Job. Yes. It seems without good answers. Right, right, and it, it right, and 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 answers aren't required for faith. Right. So Job doesn't get answers, and that doesn't change. You know, he won't he won't change what he knows is true of God or his own. He won't bend his own perception of his circumstances or his perception of God to you know, despite what the, his friends say. You know, he he his his sort of ori- orienteering points seem solid amidst all the right turmoil. And I guess. In in the middle of all of it, he's he's unwilling to tell untruth. His he's both his wife and his set of friends are urging him to say things that aren't true, and he's unwilling. His understanding of God, even if he's not understanding what God is doing, his understanding of his relationship with God is that he can't he can't tear away at that integrity. So he's not he's not going to be untrue, even in the even while he's hurting and suffering. He's gonna he's gonna hold on to what he knows. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I use this daily devotional called For All the Saints, a prayer book for and by the church. It's put together by Lutherans, and it's the daily lectionary, and there's three readings, of course, and the fourth reading by a saint or a figure in church history, sometimes somebody contemporary, everybody from Dorothy Day to Martin Luther King to C.S. Lewis to Augustine. Today was, and it's in Job, the daily lectionary. Today, this is from Zeno, Bishop of Verona, uh, circa 371, and he, he says that Job is a type of Christ. He says, Job was a rich man, but what is richer than the Lord? All the rich are his slaves, and to him belongs the whole world and every creature. As holy David says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The devil tempted Job three times in the same way as the evangelist tells us he tried to tempt the Lord. Job lost everything they owned, and the Lord left behind his heavenly goods for love of us and made himself poor that he might make us rich. The raging devil brought Job's sons to destruction. So in their madness, the people of the Pharisees slew the prophets, the sons of the Lord. Job was infected with ulcers, and the Lord, taking on our flesh, was befouled with the filth of the sins of the whole human race. And he goes on in the conclusion of this little passage, Job recovered both his health and his possessions, but the Lord at his resurrection held out to those who believe in him not merely health, but immortality, and took back to himself 
dominion over all nature as he himself bears witness when he says, all things have been delivered to me by my father. Job begat new sons to replace those he lost. The Lord too begat holy sons, the apostles in place of the prophets. Job blessed, rested in peace, but the Lord remains blessed forever before all ages, from all ages and throughout all ages. There you go. If you want to do a typological sermon and tie Job to Christ, you might want to wait for week four to bring that out. Yeah, though. right. Bring that out in week four. <laughs> there you, you go. Know, put, that, put that on the shelf. <laughs> I wear this crown of thorns Upon my liar's chair Full of broken thoughts I cannot repair On to Hebrews. Yes, the connection there is uh, an an assembly of heavenly beings both in Job and in Hebrews. I have a confession to make to you and to our listeners. Okay. One time I was guest preaching for a friend at a traditional kind of Presbyterian church in West Central New Jersey and a decently well-off community, but older kind of traditional state crowd. And I was preaching a lectionary and it was a passage from Hebrews. And I, 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 I I can't believe I you know I you know sometimes use jokes for the new congregation. I'm I'm shamed. I'm ashamed to admit I did this. I said, well, you know, we're it was I think my first Sunday there. We're in the book of Hebrews, and you know, he, this in addition to telling us something about Jesus here, it settles something that comes up at every coffee hour during fellowship time. Who makes the coffee? Well, it clearly says Hebrews. The men make the coffee, not the women. And everybody laughed so hard, and I felt so gross when everybody laughed. I, said, I, can't, I thought I can't believe I made that. That's joke. pretty so bad. I I have confessed it now. I'm, I'm confession is good for the soul. You <laughs> purged. Yeah, yeah. So Hebrews again, like Job. I think this is the first week of four. Is that right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and again, chopped up here, we have Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, and then we jump to chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. So we can throw down this challenge to the listeners, preach four sermons that tie together Job and Hebrews each week. Yes, four sermons. That is the challenge. So here we we have the opening where we have this the prologue in Hebrews that God spoke in many various ways by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he created the worlds. And, you know, he's the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being. It's a very high sort of metaphysical statement, which isn't always in the New Testament to oh, such explicit. It, yeah, to give reason. it, I think this is technically called an exordium when you get the summary of the contents of the letter right at the beginning. So, there's your outline right there. That's what you're going to preach for four weeks, verses one through four. The exordium. Yes, I think so. So you get it. Also, the exordium also gives us a good like how to read the Bible 101. You know, Tim yeah. Keller, I've heard him say, you know, you read the Bible one of two ways. It's either with Jesus, it's all about him or all about you. But here, I mean, <laughs> you have the sense in which that that Jesus is the center, right? Romans ten says he's the Telos namas, the end of the law, or as N.T. Wright likes to say, the climax of the covenant. So it's uh, it's almost it's a mandate to read the, the the Bible with Christ as the center. Right. It's definitely the hermeneutic that the writer of Hebrews will be will be taking us through here. The writer of Hebrews, by you, the way, probably not Paul. Yeah, almost certainly. Yeah, it, it's, I don't know if uh, many 
preachers have congregations that care about that kind of thing, but just for faux pas, for, for stopping fo- future faux pas, that might be worth noting. It's definitely not the person that wrote anonymous in the New York Times. <laughs> right. It's like that time when Cliff bets it all in Jeopardy on Cheers, and, and, and it's like Tony Curtis, somebody else is, and his answer is, three people have never been in my kitchen. Look, Curtis is still alive. Ask him. He's not been there. <laughs> so we have, you know, then after the exordium, we get a quotation from Sami, and then we we have Jesus who, uh, a little less than the angels, right? It's interesting because in 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 descending to live as uh, with and as us he 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 takes his place a little lower than the angels although his nature is kind of greater than the angels and he is tempted he you know suffers for us in order that he may bring many children to glory he's the pioneer of our salvation which is perfected through suffering so he's the center of of things and higher than all things and that the power is, 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 you know, it's, it's interesting because the question is, the interesting theological question, right, is not whether God is sovereign, but how God is sovereign. And if Jesus is, is the author tells us the answer to those things, it's a power that's exercised for others in, in weakness. Right. And, and the purification of sins there in chapter one, verse three, seems to be the main thing that you could carry through the whole book. That's how his power is is exercised in weakness for the purpose of the purification of our sins. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, you, you have this, Karl Barth says that you have two stories going on in the New Testament at once, that you have, one is a story of ascent, Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. You see that in the synoptics and in some parts of Paul. The other is the Son of God is Jesus Christ. It's a story of descent, of humiliation. And you see that in John and in other places of Paul. And so you you see here, you have this kind of, even though there's this prologue, uh, which is where Christ is at the center of God's revealing ways, it is sort of a lot of a story of ascent, that how he ascends to this victorious place for us. That's right. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of ascent, descent motion here throughout especially throughout this first week's readings. Just to remind you On to the Gospel of Mark. We have Jesus doing a little bit of divorce commentary. It's Mark 10, verses 2 through 16. They're the Pharisees... And anybody who's done teaching, any teaching knows the difference between an honest question meant to solicit information and one that's just meant to embarrass the teacher. And usually the questions the Pharisees bring are meant to embarrass the teacher. And he asked them, you know, is it, they asked, is it lawful to divorce your wife? He asked them, what did Moses command you? And they respond that, you know, he allowed us to do it. And Jesus says, you know, this is because of your hardness of heart. Then he goes back to creation and he says, you know, he doesn't even, in Matthew at least, Jesus kind of says, unless there's there's porneia, there's adultery, you know, fornication, something. But here he sort of absolutizes the marital. Yeah, there's no safety valve in this version. No, yeah. Uh, and then it's interesting. You move right from there to this to the disciples. You know, the disciples rebuking people bringing children to him to bless him, and he says, "Let the little children come to me, but don't stop them, for it's to such 
that to these the kingdom belongs. And unless you receive it as a child, you'll never enter into it. That's a very interesting pairing, right? Yeah. Do you, do, do you get the sense that after Jesus makes his turn toward Jerusalem in the book of Mark, you know, which would have happened in chapter 8, a few weeks ago we had an electionary where Peter rebukes him because Jesus is foretelling his death. Peter doesn't think that's what a Messiah properly should do. Reminds him of what his purpose really is. We get the transfiguration. And then it seems like all of the teachings that happen after that, as they're on their way to Jerusalem and then in Jerusalem itself, seem to be full of hyperbole. So right after this, we get Jesus saying that the rich man can't get into heaven unless he gives everything away. Yeah. And then you get you get him cleansing the temple. And you get the teaching about um, the the widow who who through two mites gives more than people who are dropping bags of gold. It just seems to be a, Jesus is kind of ratcheting things up here on his way to Jerusalem. And, and I, and I think this divorce teaching is, is sort of fits in that uh, fits in that same vein. Um, this is just a very hard thing, maybe stated a little bit more harshly um, than a final interpretation will wash it out as, but that's what we have. Yeah, it's interesting that 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 Capon notes too in his book on the parables that after Jesus sets his face on Jerusalem, you get the parable. You go from the parables of the kingdom to the parables of grace, which are all about death and resurrection. And so, yeah, I mean, I think lots of things that intensify. And then in the last, the Passion Week, the parables that are there, he calls the parables of judgment, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think that there's some there's hyperbole. There's these the 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 real emphasis in the parabolic teaching seems to be on, on death and resurrection on the, on which isn't a major theme before that. So, yeah, right. I think there, it's interesting to look at those after Mark eight, which is the climactic kind of thing in Mark. It's it, to to notice shifts like that. And it. And if you're going to have this section read in worship, I think you're almost going to have to mention it in your sermon because everybody in your congregation is going to be touched by divorce. Yeah. And a lot of people are, you know, are, are, are really concerned about Jesus' words that, uh, that a divorce is sort of the, the end for you, for your future relationships, that, that, that you should not remarry. Once that happens, and um, I, I, one way I would say might be worth turning this towards is that this is sort of an equal opportunity message, whereas the divorce laws that, that Jesus seems to be preaching against are the ones that disproportionately affect women negatively, where a husband just kind of unilaterally can divorce his wife. And and Jesus is 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 saying he's, he's kind of equaling the playing field leveling the playing field by saying that this the the ban that he's proposing this lifelong ban on remarriage applies to both men and women husband and wife so there seems to be a social justice thread that runs through here um, you might even argue that divorce still disproportionately harms women even in our own context where divorce is a very different thing than it was in Jesus time um, but these verses still hit hard. And um, I would say either preach on Hebrews and or Job and not read this, or if, if you're going to have this read in your service, you've, you've got to talk about divorce. And it's interesting, maybe a, a, a way into this in a strange way is the child passage and that children 
A, they, they come dependent, right? They know they need everything. You look at a three-year-old for you, they know they need everything from you. And, and they come expecting to be accepted. They expect that they don't, they're not wary walking into the room like adults are, right? And self-conscious, self-reflective. They, they expect, so it's interesting. If you're too self-congratulatory, like the Pharisees, you're not childlike, right? Right. Or if you're too self-flagellating, because you don't have the dependence if you're too self-congratulatory. If you're too mm. self-flagellating, you're not childlike either. And they're both right? those are both self-centered postures. Right. They're, they're self-centered, but in a form of pride, not in a form mm -hmm. of, 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 of humility and weakness. So it's, right. it's sort of, it's, it, and it's that childlikeness that, that is the fruit. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's how grace comes, and it's the fruit of grace all at the same time. That's right. Well, blessings to those preaching, and you know, I hope that their people are blessed in their sermon of what verses they pick. Right. <laughs> Oh, uh, Gunn, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Yet again. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Glenn for coming on the podcast. You can find his stuff at MeaningfulWorship.Blogspot.com. And thanks to you again for listening. Till next time, friends, fare thee well.